0: We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com.
1: Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with a good friend and a special guest today that started his career at PTC. From PTC, he moved to Agile Software for a few years as a major account manager. And after Agile, Adam moved to Arena Solutions as a director of sales, then to Open Pages as an area vice president. Then Adam joined Blade Logic as the area vice president for the West. And after BMC's acquisition of Blade Logic, Adam held the same area vice president position at BMC, but with an organization that was three times larger. Adam Ahrens moved on to become the first CRO at Okta, where he remained for over six years as he drastically scaled the sales force worldwide while growing the business from $0 to more than $300 million in annual recurring revenue. And he launched Okta to a very successful IPO before moving on to become the president and COO of Classy. today. Adam is the CRO of a very exciting startup company named Drada that is gaining terrific momentum in the worldwide market. Welcome, Adam. How are you, Ben? I'm great. I'm on a call with you, John. I couldn't be better. Thank you for having me. it's It's an honor to be here. Hey, I'm really I really am super excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, you doing good?
0: and I'm great. It's just,
1: it's a busy day. It's Monday. Feels like, feels like every day is a busy day, but today is especially busy. Yeah. I understand. I've been there. I used to sometimes ask Renee, who you remember was my assistant. Now do I, I'd see the thing, you know, every hour on the hour was a full hour meeting. So I'd ask her one time, Hey, when do I get to take a break between and 12 zero, 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 zero.
0: <laughs> Zoom makes that worse, so
1: they're half-hour
0: sprints, and if you go five minutes over on a call, your whole day now is thrown, like, it just, because, and, and when I, re, you know, the virtual world has just compacted the time that it takes to do meetings, and, the, you know, you can do 16 meetings in a day, I looked at my calendar, I'll do 18, 20 meetings in a day sometimes,
2: it's
1: yeah, it's, crazy. it's like, crazy. You know, not everybody doesn't need a half an hour. They can get their point across, and you can have a conclusion in fifteen minutes.
0: You know, when they get the extra fifteen minutes, they'll say, "Hey, while well, I got you. and I'm like, "No, <laughs> we're done. We, got, we solved the item on the agenda. I gotta go to the bathroom, right? Like, I need yeah. a fifteen minute break. You, you have to right. cut those moments out of the day, like with Renee." Monica's my executive business partner she helps me do that stuff without it I think we're our own worst enemies
1: oh for sure because you, you don't know how to say no
0: right and, and it's all important like it, nothing can be important when it's all a p-zero and like so oh, having yeah. someone help you prioritize
1: that and take some moments for yourself is really important yeah, it's so true hey Adam Drada Congrats, first of all. But why don't you tell the audience, which, because it's a new, really exciting startup, give us a little quick, you know, two minute overview on what Drada does.
0: Yeah. Thank you, John. Drada automates the data collection and attestation for compliance. So, in a nutshell, today, in order to be compliant for things like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and an array of different uh, security and risk compliance, You have to collect that data, and people do that today. They do it at the system level. They do it by getting surveys completed, and you have really highly paid security engineers doing this work. Um, We went from a paper process where compliance was all kept in those big metal filing cabinets. If you remember, like we'd have offices filled with just file cabinets of seven years worth of compliance data. They digitized that, so they digitized it. They put them in relational databases, like big document management systems so that now you can control all that information. But all the data that's rolled up is still done manually today. And it's it's really, it's that straightforward. And the, the reason the company's got such a compelling value proposition is it hasn't been done yet and nobody's really good at it. So what we do is we put, um, speak when spoken to agents that are lightweight on the applications. We integrate through the IDP And we're continuously monitoring this compliance-specific information. And we report that up into Drata, so that when you get an audit or you want to look at how you're doing against a certain compliance, it's all in one place. And then it cross-pollinates. So some of GDPR compliance is the same thing that's in SOC 2. And if you have a weakness, you can now see that across all the different compliance that you have to get to. But the real beauty of it is automating the data collection. It is painful, it's slow, and we do a really good job of that. And the market's seen that, and that's, that's the real opportunity. Once you have that data now, once you're, you're seeing all that, you can do a lot with it in, in the right. world of risk and compliance. It's not just you, it's all of your suppliers. It's all of your contractors. It's this whole ecosystem of third-party risk management it becomes really really important to these companies and how to manage it and collect it is painful today that's the problem well
1: talk just just so i understand the as is process or the process today you said the data collection is really you know difficult does that i'm kind of getting a picture of you know a person's putting manual reports together other people are coming in saying where's the manual report is it ready is it audit ready you know, and uh, they're going from person to person trying to collect that data, then aggregate all that data into a report for the auditors.
0: Correct. And um, they have to often go to the application owners to get that information because the data is in the apps, right? So they can't just go get it. They've got to go get other people to work with them to get it. And you can imagine your favorite thing to do during the day is to go sit with security to help them access the compliance information that really adds no value to you during your day. You got a full time job to do. So on both sides, it's pretty painful. And depending on the size of the company, they have to go get that information regularly. Um, the other thing is too, it's static. So once they get it, the next day, the data is old. Whereas right. A like Dorada, you're continuously looking at it. It's We call it continuous compliance information. Wow, really
1: interesting. So you're saving, the sale is really a huge productivity sale, especially on the data collection side. And then you said there's a bunch of insights you can get on the back end.
0: Yeah, there's accuracy. That, so the, we save companies hundreds to thousands of hours, depending on the site, literally hundreds of thousands of hours when they're really big organizations. And then it's accuracy because when you have an auditor, you don't want to show them everything. You want to show them what they're auditing. If you show them more than they're looking for and they see something they don't like, the audit gets bigger. And if you have a mistake or you don't, um, you have a material weakness, They come back and audit you again in a shorter period of time. So the Mm. ability to be accurate and be specific is is super important. Yeah. Well, congrats. Sounds like you got a good one there. Thanks, man. We're excited. We're coming. We're coming to your home
1: tomorrow. We'll be there. (laughs) Coming to a home near you, Drata. All right. Well, I have heard a lot of good things about the company. So, hey. Adam, let's start with something that you really experienced at Okta. So, there's a tipping point, you know, in most successful startup companies when all the signs point to, you know, expanding or scaling the sales force to take advantage of the market opportunity. And you successfully scaled Okta when their revenues grew from zero to 300 million. Now, What a lot of people, when they hear scaling, remember, we're got we trying to educate people. They think it's just as easy as just hire a whole bunch of sales reps, but there's a lot more that goes into it. So what do you think, when you think back, what are some of the keys to scaling a sales force without blowing it up?
0: Yeah, you know this. I mean, it's simple math, man. I mean, this is not rocket science. It's about productivity per head. It's about the size, your average deal size. It's the average time it takes to close a deal. And then you look at how quickly you can get people productive on that model, what ramp times look like. And if you got people that are hitting the productivity metrics in the model, you know that you got a good model and it seems to be working. When you start overachieving those metrics, you know that you can raise the bar and you could probably scale faster. It's when you're not hitting the metrics. It's when you've got productivity plans that you put in place and hiring and you start to fall behind. That's when you look at things. Hey, we're not scaling the right way. We need to look at the signals in the noise and try to figure out where something might be broken. But really it it comes down to basic, like I call it Lego blocks because it's one, one thing then you put another piece on top and you continually build it until you get to a place where you feel like it's got a good foundation and you're confident that it's built on solid ground. That just requires like, How are we doing from a productivity perspective and at the end of the year really when you and i are in you know early q3 we're looking at what do we need to do next year so how is the productivity year over year look and how confident am i that rather than adding more people i can add more quota per person and things like that so we look at that on a quarterly basis but we really plan in the third quarter so that by the time we get to the first quarter of the next fiscal year We've got hiring plans. We can get people in place that we might need productivity coming into Q one or Q two with those folks. And again, just iterating and looking at productivity and how we can get better and
1: better at it. And what about looking at, you know, where you put these people, like looking at your ideal customer profile? Where are those ideal customer profile companies? What cities are they in? Do we, you know, double down in those cities versus other cities that, you know, may not have the amount of companies that we need to be able to support the number of sales reps we'd like to put in that, in those cities. Yeah,
0: I think that comes even before the productivity plan. If you can't figure out what your ideal customer profile is and where they live, um, it's really hard to figure out how to make sure people can eat. Like I'll say, we we starve people. And when we do that, people die. Like They lose their jobs. And inevitably, if you don't get that right, you'll lose your job. I would lose mine. So You talk about like, we look at the, we'll call them like the NFL cities across the US first. We look at like where we've got the biggest concentration, which usually involves an NFL team being in that city. And then um, especially in SAS, the West Coast is a first mover. And generally speaking, even though they have the smallest footprint of enterprise accounts, you can get going really quickly there. New York is probably the East Coast, Northeast is about 18 months behind. In terms of timing, and then the central, I, I think is about eighteen months behind the northeast, just in terms of maturity around new applications. So it's looking at where the largest components of your ICP are, and then where the first movers are when you start putting people in place to make the most productive. But certainly, like that's the foundation underneath the whole productivity plan.
1: Yeah, I call that propensity to buy. So you first, you have your ideal customer profile, and you get the list of let's say hundred companies and you try to rank them based upon the companies that are going to return the highest quantifiable value to, not only to the company customer but to you but then you look at well what is their real propensity to buy it's like you said some of those tech companies in the bay area have a really high propensity to buy versus a morgan stanley or a you know j p morgan chase out on the on the east coast and I think that's another factor that you have to consider when you're thinking about, you know, scaling really quickly.
0: Yeah, we grade them A, Bs and Cs within those patches, right? And then the patches, you can start figuring out if they're A, B or C patches and and how you build that up from there. But it's really important that we understand that so that we don't starve people.
1: And then the last one is, um, I'm sure you, you um, look a lot at, If I put another person in that, let's say people in LA, the reps are doing, you know, 2 million and I put another rep in LA, I know I'll get 2 million out of them. But if I put, but I also have to make some investments because they got to go overseas. Now, if I put two, two people in Sweden, they may not be, may not be able to do a million in the first year. So You kind of also don't you feel like you're making trade-offs between? I'm trying to keep the overall average productivity of the sales force at a certain level, so I have to know where I can make some investments, but also invest in other cities to kind of offset the investments that I'm making. Yeah, and I think that's where you come up with the right plans
0: for the right investments, right? So we we need them to be successful. You said one time to me, you can make your number by a dollar, and it's like the greatest moment you'll have in your birthday and Christmas. You can miss it by a dollar, and it's like the worst feeling that you've ever had, like just getting kicked in the in the stomach. Right. Um, so setting people up for success is a big part of our job, and making investments is really important for the long-term growth of the company. So yeah, putting people in EMEA, we, we just did that recently, and we based it on uh, different quotas than we have here in North America, because it's earlier for them. They don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the people, But we knew with the draw from the customer base that if we make the investment and with our ICP and with the propensity to buy over there, it's a really good market for us to go invest in. In the same way that like when you look at Fed, right, when we decide to go that way, it's a year investment of potentially nothing like to get it stood up, to get sponsorship, to do those things. If we don't get those before we decide to go after it, which are really hard to do, it's it's a nine to 12 month investment where you need to expect that. Um, you're not going to make a lot of revenue out of it, but it's a great investment long term.
1: Right. So you touched on something that I wanted to ask about. Are you already starting to see some cross-pollinization where you sold to some, you know, worldwide or global companies in the US? And they're saying, hey, this is great, but we also need the same solution over in Europe and Asia.
0: Yeah, they look at it that way. So they they under there's usually a central point. They'll try us for one or two compliance frameworks, like they'll say, Hey, we want you for. SOC 2 and ISO 27001. And then they're looking at as they prove that out, what else they can go automate? GDPR is huge for us right now.
2: Right, especially in Europe, right? That's it. Yeah, it is the it's the ISO of Europe. Yeah. Or SOC 2 of Europe. Let's switch gears
1: a little bit. Let's talk about qualifying. When you think about qualifying a deal, you know, what are the critical questions or the key information that you're trying to discover? funny because, you know, we think about qualification and I jump to medic
0: every time because it's a qualifier that lives with it. And I try to use it in all these points. I don't try to get cute. Um, I'm working with uh, Drada. We use ICE as the as the starter for what is a qualified opportunity. It's identifying the pain, which means I know what hurts and what their compelling event is tied to. Do I have a champion and who's going to champion this thing and who's the economic buyer? And we often start with medic. Saying we, you know, hey, we need to get the metric. And that's one of the hardest things to get. And so I, I, you know, I respect that. It takes time, but early on, we're trying to get ice. We try to ice the opportunities and we use that between the SDRs and the reps as a handoff point, um, as the initial qualifier. And by the way, we use medic all the way through in the customer journey as well. Once they're a customer, we're leveraging medic as we go through them through customer success to make sure that we still understand. What's qualified in that opportunity? Like, give me an example of that. So, or the audience, an example of that. So, when a rep uh, hands off an opportunity to customer success here at Drata, they have to have medic, or we won't deploy them. They won't turn them on. So, we've implemented medic um, as a standard, and we're and people as we move deals into deployment phase, didn't have it. They wouldn't have all the medic components, and it's really important because when CS gets engaged. They want to know what's the business problem they're trying to solve. At some point, if we're going to get a renewal or an upsell, it's really good to know what the decision process, their criteria is to make a decision. Like why did, what was the original compelling event? And we often get single threaded. So knowing who the champions are and who the economic buyer is and who we competed with on that opportunity are just, like we continually use that stuff. And so the whole idea was, why change it? Why wouldn't we continually do that and keep that mindset throughout the customer lifecycle and throughout their journey? Because our goal is to continually add value to these customers. And if we can do that through qualification and through the life cycle, we're we're a much better partner.
1: Yeah, if we can show that what you tried to prove during the sales process actually is being implemented and you're getting those results, you know, post sales then that's a great way to go back to the economic buyer and say, Hey, this is an opportunity to buy more because you're already getting more than you bargained for on your investment.
0: Yeah. It's like back to your international question a minute ago. Like we go talk about GDPR, look how well you're doing with these other frameworks and then we're growing. Right. So we're building new products all the time. And we want a reason to go have an audience to discuss them. Why not talk about the great success you've had with the things that you've deployed and the opportunity we think to help you do a lot more great things with Drada.
1: Yeah. So I looked at your website and I think you have like 14 different frameworks, right? So do those just, do all 14 of those frameworks typically sell to the same owners inside the organization or is it a different set of stakeholders?
0: It's generally uh, security and compliance or the, it's risk and security and compliance. That's where we are. So the CISO is often the economic buyer for us in those cases, unless they have a chief compliance officer, it can roll into the CIO or the COO, even the CFO. But generally speaking, those 14 frameworks report up to the same group of folks. Unless they're a bifurcated organization, they have different business units, then those business units can have to comply themselves. And we would have to go business unit by business unit to figure that out in big accounts like a Coke or a conglomerate of of different companies. Okay,
1: let's go back to qualifying. So you gave me ICE, which I think you really intended to say in the early stages, if we can get ICE, we think this could be a potential deal. But now as it looks like a potential deal and it's going further down the sales process, what are, are there any additional critical questions or key information you're looking to discover? Yeah, we
0: use value drivers as the primary function to qualify opportunities. Um, we use our differentiators, competitive differentiators, and we'll ask companies like questions of how long does it take you to, to do your SOC 2 today? What is that experience like? Can you tell me what systems you use today? And are they automated? And we'll get into details around the data collection and the difficulty to connect to it. And is it a one-time? Do you do this once or do you do it continuously? If so, how many times will we help? You know you'd say like you stick the knife in right and you want them to feel the pain so you start turning it a little bit with the questions and and you know hey have you ever had a have you ever had a a weakness when you've reported up and the nice thing well I guess not the nice thing but the important thing about compliance is you publish it so if you get a SOC 2 and you're working with a company that forces you to have one, they can look at how you did on your SOC 2, not every SOC 2 is the same. And if you have multiple weaknesses or it shows that you had failures, you report that up. And mm-hmm. so the ability, when you talk about that with a prospect and you, you talk about when they've had an issue, it means more time and it means they're doing more mundane tasks. And so the ability to help us qualify that that leads back into what's differentiated about drata so that we can talk about that within a set of criteria that leads back to our value drivers. Because what we try to do is we take that discovery, we spend time in discovery to really try to understand what the pain is so that we can map that to criteria that's unique to Drada, that maps to a business value proposition so that we can articulate that back into what it means to the prospect. And if you can tie that together, and that's that's what qualification is, is, because I always, you know, I say like, there's two winners in every deal, right? the guy that wins and the guy that or gal that goes home first, right? Because you, you either qualify the heck out of that thing or you qualify it. And when we lose deals, we get outsold. It's like, why do you get outsold? Right. You didn't qualify it. If you did, you would have qualified it to the criteria that you knew you could use to provide the value that would force them to say, this is the most important things. So if you can't establish that, get out. Go right. you, have
1: to, you have to establish the decision criteria, right? You have to establish what they're buying. And if you can't establish that they're buying what you're selling, you got to get out.
0: So we put Gates in the process. You know, we use a seven-step sales process. But at the point of go, no-go, when we're going to do a proof event or not, they have to have criteria and a mutual action plan documented with the prospect. And that criteria has to be approved by the solutions engineer before we can take it. a proof event we do that just to hold ourselves accountable to saying are we getting the criteria that we need to be successful and, and can we prove that out with next steps
1: right now how many times when you do that is there some criteria from the competition built into that decision criteria i don't think we do a good
0: enough job of that i think there's all i think it's a lot and i think you know we really try to differentiate on what makes Drata unique. And then when we see things that are go against that, we know a competitor's in there. Um, But we're doing a large volume of accounts. And so for us, it's about making sure that we're inspecting what we expect. And you've hit on a soft spot. I think we could do a better job there.
1: Yeah, I usually think of it as like a bullseye. You know, if I can get to the bullseye, that's all of my key differentiators in the decision criteria. And then if all of a sudden I see some of the decision criteria is a little inside the bullseye and a little outside the bullseye, I'm putting my deal at risk because they could wait or score those things outside my bullseye in favor of the competition. I could lose the POV. I know. I want to go to my champion at that point and understand
0: what's going on, right? That's a conversation
1: before we commit to the proof of value. Right, and if he can't get that changed, then you realize that the competition champion is pretty strong, maybe even stronger than your your champion. Right, so now you might have a real problem. You might not have a champion at all. <laughs> that was a great you might have a coach. You think right. you got a champion? You got a coach?
0: Exactly. So I think that's exactly part of the qualification: is holding yourself accountable to those things. So that you can apply whether you should be in that opportunity or not, because then we get outsold. Right. You, you know, I love asking that question in an interview is tell me about a deal that you lost. And the person will say, Oh, well, you know, product just didn't do it. It's like,
1: it was never their fault.
0: (laughs) It's when it is their
1: fault, you know, you got someone of character sitting in front of you. It's It's a good question to ask. Yes. Yes. But going back to the original point, it's all about locking down that decision criteria and getting a champion that can help you control that criteria and formalize and finalize that criteria, get you to the economic buyer. And then if if you can get through that stage, it's pretty much done that you're going to get the deal.
0: That's when you get to go, no, go. And if you get through it, your close rates are at like, better than 87 percent right because you know you're really good at that and should be you get it into the like if you can really nail the criteria that's why we said criteria and mutual action plans it's like i want to know how i'm going to get to the economic buyer and i want to get agreement if i'm going to go do the proof event because you don't have a lot of leverage after that right so establishing it while you have it is
2: super important i want to go back to
1: qualifying again okay <laughs> No, because you gave me the ice piece, which I really understand. You're trying to early on try to discover, especially in lower end accounts, whether or not this is a deal that you think there's something there. Um, but what about bigger deals? Are there other qualifying questions that you're asking if a rep's standing in front of you and saying, hey, I'm going to get this deal? Um, yeah, I, I again, for for me, it's like, Help me understand
0: the why you're going to get this deal, and and what components of. And we use medic as a qualifier that that are telling you that you are. So prove it to me. Like give me the um, what is your champion told you is the compelling reason that that he has to do this or she has to do this. What why is it personal for them in order to do this? How do you know that your champion's stronger than your competition's champion? Um, and helping them identify that, and we. We do that with a lot of discovery questions as well, especially in the enterprise. That's again kind of wrapped around our unique uh, competitive like features, and then that roll up into the the value drivers for the
1: organization. But
0: look, I don't think you can automate all of this. It takes like that's what forecasts are for.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to I want to get there. I want to get there. But to your point, it's a lot of it is the three why's also like, you know, to your point, you know, why, why do they, they have to buy? If your rep then can't state one of your value drivers and explain that, then they can't answer the why do they have to buy product uh, part of it. And then the deal's really out the door.
0: Yeah, look, I, I yeah. Why do anything? Why do it now? And why do it with Drada is something that we focus on. As just sort of like the backdrop to all of this. But yeah, look, I, I think that's why we get on the phone every week and we talk through these. This stuff is hard, right? You learn a lot. And getting people with experience on the phone, um, and, and I get to do that a lot too, is, is can be really important and impactful so that we get back to the fundamentals
2: of what's a qualified op or not. Yeah. Okay,
1: let's go to sales process. When you think about the sales process, if you could only pick the mo- one most critical step or one most critical stage in the process, that if they do it right, you believe there's gonna be a high probability of success. What, what do you think that is? Discovery, for sure. We don't spend enough time
0: there. So people are the least comfortable and it's where you get the most information
1: to have the most impact on the deal and that's really to your earlier point that's where you discover if they're buying what you're selling yeah i i think it's really important that you establish that or you
0: you can waste a lot of time on an opportunity and and that's the precious thing about what we do right we don't have time we're we're a 90 day contract to go deliver on a number and if we don't place our bets wisely in, in places that
1: we know we can win that time runs out really fast. Now, for people that don't know what you mean by discovery, what type of information do you need your rep to discover in discovery to make you feel like, okay, they did that, they did that pretty well? What are like four or five different things that they need to get?
0: We will ask, like, how, do, how would you measure the operational value of a solution to help you go solve this problem? How would you measure the business impact of that value? Um, How would you measure the value of the support for your chosen solution? One thing about Drought is we're really good at making customers successful. So we'll ask them like, how do you measure support? How much value do you put on that? What are other measures of value that are important to you? Um, We'll talk about their current environment. Like what are your compliance requirements today? How do you expect those to change in the future? Uh, What's the plan to achieve your current compliance requirements? How much time do you spend pulling that information? Who owns the compliance initiative? Um, When is your next audit? How important is that timeframe? And how important is that to you and the organization? What type of impact does that have? Those will be some of the discovery questions that we like to
2: ask. Yeah, and that starts to formulate the beginnings of that decision criteria, right? Yeah, and they're open-ended,
0: right? It can't be yes or no. You wanna get them to talk about what, they're, what what that means to them. If you ask them a question, it's yes or no, you often don't get the context that you're looking for.
1: Now, when you go in there today, are there other companies that have tried to automate this process or have you faced companies that tried to automate it in-house themselves?
0: Yeah, the really big organizations have often built it in-house themselves because there are solutions that have tried to automate it and they've done a very poor job up until now. The best automation in GRC, if you ask people, in governance, risk, and compliance is ServiceNow. And it really doesn't have anything to do at this level of data collection. It's about ticketing and automating the requests and the things like, because it really just has not, no one's done a great job down here of automating the, the compliance journey. There, some have tried and it's, it's pretty ugly. So big banks and, and like the Fortune 100 often have teams of people and they've built their own software to do this. And in the same vein, those are some of the best opportunities for Drada because it's not easy for
1: them to do. They're not in business to automate the compliance journey. Right, but you see it all the time where a lot of companies have tried to build in-house applications to try to do what they can't find in the marketplace. Absolutely, and they
0: exist in this space as well.
2: Yeah.
1: Forecasting, Adam. It's the beginning of the quarter, it's time to give a forecast for the company. You know, what information do you need or do you look at to accurately forecast? Well, dude, I mean, I live in Salesforce. I think I'm like one of the earliest users
0: of the system. Cuz now that Salesforce is probably going on 25 years. Um, I can relate to that. So, uh, we use Clary as well that sits on top. So I you know you can't get all the reporting and analytics that I want out of Salesforce. So we augment a lot of that information with Clary. So I, I know what my pipeline coverage looks like going into a quarter. That's probably the biggest indicator for me because behind that is my average deal time to close, my average deal size, which reps are holding the lion's share of that because I know some of them are more productive than others and I can count on them more. So I use that data as a starting point. Then we do quarterly business reviews. We get together as a team every quarter and we spend a day and a half to two days. One part is all enablement and the other part's all inspection. And we get the reps to stand up and we walk through the deal by deal. Their top five deals, 10 deals, depending on the size or segment of the market. Um, and we spend a day just going through it rigorously each rep commits to a number, each leader above them commits to a number, and then that rolls up to me. Um, And often at that point, I'll make a call, be it um, above or below. And if if I'm above, then everybody's got to raise their commits to match mine um, because we don't believe in in getting out over our skis that way, but I'll justify it. I'll give them the why. Uh, So we use, it's a combination of looking at what are the fundamentals that I need in order to go into a quarter. And then it's the personal like sitting down and really understanding what that business is going to be like. I don't have to be in the room for every QBR, but the motion has to be done and the leaders have to follow through with that and roll it up to me.
1: All right. So you're doing, let's, let me break that down a little. You're doing deal by deal where they walk, walking through that. You're also looking at some metrics, like you're looking at the number of new deals, the number of existing deals. You're looking at the ASP for, you know, new deals and existing deals. You're probably looking at the productivity of your sales force and how many reps you got. Um, Those are the types of things that are going into you cutting a forecast. And then at the end of the day, it sounds like you're sitting back saying, okay, how did Joe, who always has rose colored glasses, (laughs) what did he forecast? And what about Sally, who's always sandbagging? And what did she forecast, right? And you're picking her number up and taking Joe's number down.
0: Yeah. And I do that with the leaders on the team, right? I challenge them off their people. And when they tell me what their commits are, I say, all right, walk me through it. And that means rep by rep. So tell me what each rep is committing up to you to get you to your number. And then if I want to go into it, I'll drill into the rep and say, that's BS because Sally's always sandbagging me, right? So you're going to pull in an extra 150K. I don't believe you. And by the way, you own that
2: now. So your commit has just gone up and we're going to own that together. Yeah. But it's
1: it's a combination of metrics. It's a combination of deal by deal and it's a combination of gut feel.
0: Yeah, it's science,
1: right? And, And art. It's, it's, yeah, but a lot of the art is based upon your science and past experience dealing with people, right? It's, it's
0: all based on that as well as the people that are in seat right now, right? So it's yeah. my experience having seen it before and then knowing the personalities of the people in the room and, and what their tendencies are like. By the way, it's not good to be Sally or rose-colored glasses guy. You don't get credit. For either one. And in fact, when it starts to become a trend, you get called out consistently in front of your peers to try to stop you from doing it. Like, it's not a good thing.
1: I agree. I used to tell some people about that. I used to say, look, I forecast based upon the way that you forecast. Since you always have rose colored glasses, and you always sandbag, don't change. Because (laughs) if you change, you'll screw up my forecast. (laughs) That's a different
0: approach. That's reverse psychology. I'll try. Yes.
1: Yes. How about metrics? You know, when you um let's talk about some of the metrics that you might track during the quarter, and then that might give you insights as to how it's going. And then what what are some of the metrics you look at when the quarter's all done and you want to review the quarter?
0: Yeah, we're looking at pipeline coverage throughout the quarter, and it gets lower as you get further down into the quarter. You start with a bigger amount, and then it gets smaller as you get towards the end. That's natural, right? It should be. It should be moving either out of the forecast or into your commit and closing. And so we're consistently looking at like, and because it's such an early business, it changes a lot. So our sample sizes aren't as big as they're going to be as we continue to grow. So some of it is looking backwards at Hey, what were we able to do at different points of the months that lead up to the end of the quarter? And how are we tracking against that? And then it's, hey, what are we expecting ourselves to do? And what does the productivity plan dictate that we need to do? And how are we tracking against that? And it's trying to pull the two together to say, hey, we're on track to hit the number, or we're off a little bit, or we're ahead of it. And that's, I mean, I look at it daily. It's bad, right? But you're, con- it's like, Yes, yes, you wake up in the morning, you can have a bad dream and you'll pull up, you know, what's my pipe coverage look like, what are my average deals looking like this quarter, how many of those do I have left in the different segments and like who's got them so that I know where they're going and like which reps have been able to over it, we go back to sandbagging or people that are overachievers um, or underachievers And so it's it's a combination of that. But, dude, I look at it weekly, daily, monthly. I know coming out of a quarter, when we finish the quarter, we look at how many transactions did we do at what point? So how many of them happened on the last day, the last week, the last month? We look at the average deal sizes of those transactions by segment to say, are they growing or are they shrinking? If they're shrinking, it could be a competitive issue. It could be a pricing issue. It could be a market issue. Um, right expanding it means we're getting more productive we're doing better um and then with that looking at that in conjunction with pipeline coverage um i can then look forward and say okay with the group that i've got what i keep seeing because it's ever changing how am i going to commit to the next quarter my if my acvs are getting bigger if i was able to do 20 percent more deals and i'm And depending on how much growth I need to experience in the productivity model, meaning how many more people are getting productive on that plan will dictate how much confidence I have to to bet more or less on what we're gonna do that quarter.
1: And you do conversion rates also between the different stages, have you done that? We do it um, early and late and overall,
0: right? So a lot of people talk about conversion rates and I wanna see what, what converts to the proof event I wanna see what converts from the proof event to close. And then I wanna see what the conversion rate looks like from the initial conversations through close. And I think if I could see those three things, it helps me be much more accurate on what's going on in the business. I can then break it down into where I might be getting stuck. So yeah, conversion rates are just sort of a constant that I'm looking at to say like, what are my rates? to getting a deal into the boat? What are my rates to getting it to the proof event? And then once I get it through the proof event, do they close? And by the way, how does that look across the spectrum? And we're just, we're looking at that constantly.
1: Right. Well, there's the new and there's the existing, right? The existing customers are going to get from that POV quicker to the PO versus the new. Yeah, they're at the POV stage, but you're right. Looking at existing, we don't
0: we don't have a ton of that here because the company's two and a half years old, but our conversion rates are
2: much, much higher and the process is different for those upsells. Yeah. I want to switch gears. You got
1: customer success. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's a proud. No, I actually think that customer success in your world and in the software world doesn't get enough attention. And I think that customer success done right can really be a competitive weapon um, against the competition. And it shouldn't be looked upon as like a cost center. It should be looked upon as like a revenue generating sec- segment of the business. So I know you just took it off, but what are some of your first thoughts on, on handling customer success? Yeah, I think to your point, it's a competitive advantage. So. As the, the leader of
0: the go to market and the customer success motion, you sell good deals, Like you're not going to go do things. You won't let the teams sell deals because you've got to deliver them. And so I'm much more conscious of what's good for the business and what's right. When there's two leaders there, sometimes that can get lost. And I think that's really important to making customers successful. But it's beyond that. Customer success, when done right, um, can be renewable. It can become a part of the ARR it enables the channel. So if they're one-off services or they're, why not give those to a channel partner that'll bring you into more opportunities where you can get more ARR. And we look at that too. Uh, it's a value driver. So when you're doing updates with customers and you have new products coming to market. And again, we sort of, we try to base the customer life cycle around the value that we're delivering. You can have these value conversations say, Hey, by the way, we did that for you over here. We think, there's a whole bunch of other value that we can unlock for you, Mr. And Mrs. Customer. And that becomes really relevant over Mm -hmm. time. Um, And you differentiate because nobody really does it good today. So having customer success driven that way and thinking about how to expand their customers, how to make them more successful, how to build metrics into that organization is is super relevant. And and it can force multiply you through the channel. It can force multiply your ARR because look, Customers need a health check annually. They need training and and education annually. Like These things that you think about, and you can drive more value that way, and then the things that they need in order to help deploy, driving that through channel partners to get more ARR just creates a, a much
2: bigger ecosystem and more value to the customer.
1: And when you look at churn, what do you think are the primary reasons for churn? If you had to pick two reasons why customers churn,
2: I think it's investment. So we've found that the bigger the investment that
0: they make, um, they'll stick with it, even if okay. they don't deploy it. I like that. Yeah. Even if they fail, uh, they don't want to look bad. So if they put real skin in the game, they'll hang with you longer. Um, and then I think it depends on your business, but multi-year contracts are there for a reason. Workday was brilliant at not doing deals less than three-year contracts because It took time to get the value out of Workday. If you had a one-year contract, you could decide whether you were getting the value or not pretty quickly, and it might churn. So I think doing multi-year contracts with customers, and a lot of times they push back and say, no, we just want to do a one-year term. And then that becomes a conversation point. It's like, well, if you're just going to make a decision for one year, why make it at all? As the deployment, the change management you're going to go through, like. You're just going to get started. You should like what do you need to do to prove to yourself that this should be a multi year investment because you shouldn't do the work unless you've justified that to yourself. So I think the term lengths on contract, getting customers to commit time and then the more money that they put into that solution keeps them held,
1: keeps them keeps them in the game and and reduces churn in a big way. No, I agree with that. The, what you said there, time to value is a big part of it, right? I mean, if you have a product like App Dynamics where you can plug it in and almost immediately you can see value, then um, it's okay if the customer's on a one-year deal, right? And it, that also helps if you're trying to do PLG when you're trying to sell to the customer. If time to value is like six to nine months, well, you better sign up for a two or three-year deal because, to your point, by the time they do all the implementation, all the work, they and they only have three months left, they haven't seen any real value out of this thing yet. And then here comes renewal time, and now your, your back is up against the wall because they feel like they just spent money and didn't get much out of it. So time to value, which changes from product to product, really has a big effect on on that. It does for us, right? Because Audits are an annual thing,
0: and so if you deploy Drata for an audit uh, and you have a great experience, it's awesome. You'll renew. But if you're you slip you slip up along the way or you delay it, and the audit comes and you don't use it because there's been a change of the guard or something, you that person's not thinking about setting up the audit for the next year, because it's a one year term. But if you have multiple years, and by the way, it's not about the audit in our world. It's about good risk taking good risk and making sure the company's secure, the audit is just the proof that you've done that work. Um, So getting people to understand that and security posture and sitting in front of that is a big, that's a big part of our jobs. That's where in discovery, right? And helping them understand what the value is going to be to them and the organization long-term is really important. And that, that begets a multiple year contract. I wish I had PLG led products, man. I wish I could, go lay something down and let it incubate and come back. They should start buying. Um, I've heard about companies like that, but um, yeah. And in our world here and in even my world previously, my world's previously that it's, it's been a lot of sales led motion and less product. So we need to be on top of that and in front of that.
2: Yeah. And then um,
1: I think I might've forgot what I was going to ask you there. Oh, so have now that you own customer success, have you seen it where the customer's about to churn and then the salespeople and the client success people come to you and the sales guys say, Hey, we sold a good deal, but customer success can't support the customer. And customer success says, No, we can support the customer. The rep sold the bad deal.
0: Yeah, I think you see,
1: (laughs) I think it's just sort of a natural um
0: finger pointing exercise. We try really hard not to do that here. We take accountability and like, hey, if the customer bought the wrong thing, why? We're pretty diligent about looking at why something would churn. And um, there are cases where customers will buy us for a reason, but they have a grander view of what they want to do and their priorities will shift and we can't deliver on what they want to do. And that's a that's something that we have to own. And if it happens within a certain time period, the rep doesn't get credit for it. We do book it. Right. So, yeah. and if we don't find out early, shame on us. That means we're not engaging
1: the customer properly. And we're right. Not exactly. It. Exactly. Now, do you have telemetry built into your software so you can see what the customer is doing and kind of model ideal customer behavior versus a customer that's going sideways and, and get client success to call in early? yeah we use an automation platform to
0: do it as well that connects into salesforce called catalyst and so that allows you to build workflows and and different points of contact and outreach to these customers in a coordinated fashion um but on on top of that like we you do marketing campaigns to make sure these customers are healthy and and their well-beings are in the right place we look at the metrics of their engagement on the platform how often they're in it who's in it to be able to judge like how well they're doing with the software. So we're looking at that stuff
1: pretty consistently. You know, just going back to where client success people and salespeople are pointing fingers at each other. um, And I know you tried to avoid that, but Mark Robage at HubSpot, he came up with a really unique idea. I don't know if you can do this based upon the infrastructure of your organization, but what he did is he moved the desks. He took the sales reps that were responsible for certain accounts and moved their desks like two by two. So two reps and two desks, and then two client success people and two desks, and he fa- made them face each other. So then, now, if something was going wrong in an account, client success people could turn to the rep and say, hey, did you know that this person didn't show up for the orientation meeting? And the rep would pick can pick up the phone right away versus being you know, another part of the organization and just sending little emails and stuff or slacks to each other.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. You'd say because we, we, we're virtual, we don't have the ability to physically do it, but we are building pods between the reps and the CSM so that they hold each other account. Cause right now it's very well, previously it's been sort of a round robin approach when deals come through the different CSMs will work on it. So we brought in a new chief customer officer. He's great. And together we're looking at how we pod them up with the different groups outside of just segmentation. So we get more personal touch
2: between the teams. Cool. Adam, you got anything else for us? You know, I, I'm here to answer your, I've
0: enjoyed the conversation, man, like terms of anything more I'll say if you're a leader and you're doing this work, it's hard work. You should expect it to be hard. You should enjoy the grind and enjoy the challenges because you learn so much in these jobs. And even with the things that you and I have talked about, there's so much more depth that you could drive d- dive down into. And and frankly, depending on the size, the scale of your organization, the market that you're in, when the one thing you know is that when you decide make a decision. Be prepared to iterate and be prepared to make it better and be agile because stuff's hard and you're not always going to make the right ones. And even the people with the most experience that have scaled and done it before you have to make hard decisions every single day. Uh, Having good mentors like you, John, and other people that you can work with to help you make the right decisions and having those people in your organization have been really important to me. And, um, And look, this isn't, again, I come back to like, it's not rocket science. There's science and art to this, but if you're diligent, you hold yourself accountable and you do the hard work, you do the road work, um, good things will happen. Yeah,
1: I I think that goes for all levels. But when you think back from when you moved, let's just uh, play one more game here where when you moved from rep to first line manager, what's the number one thing you think you had to learn? How to not be a super rep. Ah, exactly. So many people do that. They think they have to show everybody that they're the super rep, right? It's even harder when you go to the second line. Okay. Tell me about that. You go first line, to second line. What's the second? Next now,
0: rather than touching the reps that are on the deals, you got to get the leaders to go do that with the reps and then come back, like forcing behavior that you want done at the end point through another... Layer is just that much harder. And so people will jump over that. Like <laughs> they'll go over the leader, they'll make decisions, and like, everything needs to come back through that loop. You all have to be tied in. And when you want to get things done, you have to be willing. Like everybody does things a little differently. And how you motivate people to do that now that you've got an extra line below you, rather than just reaching below them to try to
1: get to the deals, it takes discipline and it takes communication and, and expectation setting. And you're certainly not helping the productivity of the sales rep who has to answer the questions of the first line manager and then answer the same exact questions of the second line manager.
0: Yeah, I'll get rep, you know, I'll have a manager say, hey, look, we'll put together a call for you on that. I'm like, when's your call? And they'll say, what do you mean? Like, don't create another call. I'll sit in on your call. Like, don't I don't want you to pull the data to get. I'll, I'll, I'll be in the background. I'll speak when I need to. But make me a part of your cadence so that you don't have to double down on the information. Um, I remember at BMC, Jim drill did that one time and was like, this rep got called by eight different leaders in one day about the same account. He called him, I called him, the VP called him, the manager called him, the head of CS called him. It was like, he's like, when's the guy supposed to do his job? Um, And you know, it was a, I think that's a really good way of looking at when you're oversaturating the need. And you need to step back and let leaders lead.
1: That's when you need segregation of duties too. Like the second line manager should be helping the first line manager with recruiting and with training and development. Because that first line manager might have just gotten promoted, never really recruited anybody before, never interviewed anyone before. And they need a lot of support there. And the second line manager can also help that first line manager understand the strengths and weaknesses of all the different reps underneath the first line manager and help them understand how to put together a custom training program for each and every one of those reps, which is really hard for the first line manager who's out there every day just trying to make sales calls and trying to do some recruiting. It's really difficult. I think the first line manager job is the most difficult job in the company. Yep. You've heard you say that before. I think being an SDR is pretty hard too. Yes. Yes, that's really hard. What about when you moved to VP? What's the big biggest thing you had to
2: learn? How to manage up more effectively. How to set right
0: expectations and get the air cover that my people needed, while not diving down deep into their shit, but being able to help, pardon my French, being able to help manage up
2: for the organization was a big a big one for me. Yeah. And what about when you're a CRO? Uh, having patience and being
0: understanding that um, you know you're the oldest, you're the youngest guy in the room until you're not, and so now you know things have shifted for me. And you can expect you know you can you try to get things moving in a way, and you look at your experience and having respect um, and empathy for people that haven't done it before that are that you're working with to make sure that they understand the why versus just saying. Hey, trust me, let me go do my job. Like I know what I'm doing. You hired me here for a reason. Having that level of empathy working with founders, helping them understand why the why is right. probably one of the most important things for me. And then getting them to go do it, even if they don't think it's the right thing, without, you know,
1: being threatening, but helping them understand why they need to do it, even if they may not agree with it. I think the hardest thing for most people that I've mentored when they first get to the CRO job is they. They don't see themselves on the same level, even though they're on the executive team. They don't see themselves on the same level with the CEO. And I've had to have many conversations with them talking about you had it with me. CEO, <laughs> maybe with you also CEO sees you as an important part of the company. You're the revenue generating arm of the company and they want to hear. What you have to say about the business, and you need to express, fully express, not halfway, but fully express what you see in the business and what you think the business needs. And it's a it should be a mono-a-mono conversation. Now, at the end of the day, the CEO has the title and the positional power, and they get to make the decision as to what you do. But you have to explain that this is the way you see the business, and you have to get your points across because they value that. They don't want to hear you hard. tippy. Yeah.
0: I remember when I had that conversation with you at Okta, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, because especially a first time CRO, um, you don't feel that way about yourself necessarily. And so you, you have to have courage and, you know, you've got to be, you've got to have a pragmatic hat on where you say, I know a lot more about this part of the, I'm here for a reason. Um, and I think you get more respect when you can do that. I don't know how good I was at that early in my career either. It took a uh, habit forming for me to feel that way. You get yeah. the Poster syndrome, I think.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some of that. And you feel like, well, I, I'm in the ty- I'm in the role, but I've only been in here for four or six months. I'm still trying to get my sea legs. So who am I to go tell the CEO what I really believe is going on in this business? But to your point, you're, you're going to see things in sales even if you were in the job a month that they're just never going to see because they've never been in those shoes. And often they're technical founders. So they don't think that way every time. Exactly. Exactly. That's why they need your full opinion on what you believe is going on. I think that's so important. I I, I really do think that's an issue that a
0: lot of young CROs deal with that. Given good coaching could, could
1: help them in their companies a lot more. I just had that conversation with somebody the other day. <laughs> you know who the person is. I do. I, I won't. Do.
0: I, won't go, I won't call him out on this podcast, but we both <laughs> know who he is. Bring
1: anyway, back. it went well. They went and had the conversation. They had the courage. They went, sat down with the CEO, had the conversation, came back happy as a clam to me, saying it worked. It worked wonders, and now we have a much better relationship. That's yeah, great. He's a great guy.
0: He can have that conversation. It's good that he's got you there to help him with it.
1: Yeah. Well, Mr. Adam Aarons, first of all, congratulations on your new opportunity at Drata. Thanks for spending your valuable time to educate some people on the Revenue Builders podcast. Really appreciate it, man. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Anything, anytime, anywhere, John. Proud to
1: be here with you. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode.
0: Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.